Today is Christmas in August. We're in Luke chapter 2. And it is the very evening where the Messiah gets born. Now this is the one person that people have been waiting for ever since God promised there would be a Savior. Can you imagine? Centuries, even thousands of years, people have been waiting, expecting. And the interesting thing about this is the way that the Messiah comes. There are plenty of amazing, exalted places where the Messiah could be born, but God doesn't choose any of them. And the people to whom God reveals this, there are plenty of powerful people in the world, and yet God reveals this to shift workers, very low and humble men. So he's born of a humble mother. He's born in a nowhere place, God announces his birth to lowly, humble men. And it's true that he uses angels to announce that, but he de-emphasizes the angels. It's really not the fact that they're there and they're glorious. It's about the Messiah. And it's revealed through what God says. And that's really the big message here in Luke chapter 2. That God reveals the Messiah to the humble through his word. So we're going to read here in Luke chapter 2. And it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census first took place while Quirinius was governing Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Joseph also went up from Galilee, out of the city of Nazareth, into Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David. To be registered with Mary, his betrothed wife, who was with child, so it was that while they were there, the days were completed for her to be delivered. She brought forth her firstborn son, wrapped him in swaddling cloths, and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, what we want to notice first is that Luke has rooted this gospel account in history. And this is how you wrote historical documents. You know, there was no absolute way to date anything. We have nowadays a little more absolute method, and it's really by the birth of Christ. We measure before Christ, after Christ. 
But back then, there really was no absolute standard. The Jews reckoned their year from the beginning of creation. And they could tell you which year it is since creation. But the Romans would date everything from the founding of Rome. So the question is, whose dating system do you use? How do you root these things in history? And one solution that was used is to relate your events with the reigns of kings and important people. And that's what Luke is doing here. And he says, the birth of Jesus is dated from this decree from Caesar Augustus, and he further limits it to when this fellow Quirinius was governing Syria. And of course, both of these men are historical. That is, Caesar Augustus. He was born in 63 BC, and his name was Caius Octavius. He was the grandnephew of Julius Caesar. He's important because he eliminated the last of his political rivals at the Battle of Actium, 31 BC. And what that meant was he was the last one standing. He became the sole ruler of Rome. And it's at that point that Rome ceased to be a republic and in effect became an empire. And Caius Octavius became the first Roman emperor. Now they didn't call it that because one of the things that Octavius decided was that his granduncle, Julius Caesar, moved too quickly to assume power. People didn't trust one man to have all the power. That's why they assassinated him. He wasn't going to make that mistake. So what he did was to restore the republic, to restore the Senate as a decision-making assembly. And everything looked like the old Rome was rolling just as before. But it was all for show because he collected all the rule in Rome into himself and functioned as king. But he didn't want to use that. That's a little scary for people. He didn't want to use the name dictator. So at some point, he proposed to the Senate that they call him Augustus, which means revered or even worshipped. We weren't at this point to the point of Caesar worship. That came later because this is what all the Eastern kings would do is declare themselves divine, and that provides divine authority so that people have to obey them. You disobey the king, then you're also disobeying God, and that has problems later on when you stand before the God, and he says, what did you do there? I'm going to send you to hell for that. So we're not to that point yet, but it solves the problem of what do you call a guy who is the emperor but wants to avoid the name 
emperor. So nobody gets scared. And in a sense, he was revered because with the Battle of Actium, wiping out the last of any political rivals to Octavius, that meant there was peace for the first time in hundreds of years all over the world. That is, the Roman civil wars, of which he was the last one standing, had ripped up all of the Mediterranean for decades. Meanwhile, Alexander the Great's successors were ripping it all up in the Middle East. And what that meant was war after war after war after war. But with Octavius being the last one standing, suddenly there was peace. Nobody was fighting anybody. They actually went around and got all the pirates who were attacking the shipping and making it unprofitable to have commerce. And there was peace that lasted over 200 years. Now, with that kind of stability, money can come out again from where you hit it so that, you know, robbers and bandits and also big government people don't come along and take it because they're busy fighting their enemies. So now you, you get all this money appearing and people can make trade, ship, commerce. There's prosperity. There's peace and safety. So there's Augustus, savior of the world, they called him. And he had all the power. But then you got Quirinius. He was born around 51 BC, and he was a professional soldier of Rome. He rose through the ranks. He accomplished good things for the Roman military. And eventually, he started getting appointed to governor ships, consulates. And he was proconsul of Asia, which is the western half of modern-day Turkey. So he kind of rose to the ranks, became kind of a high mucky-muck. By this time, he is the governor of Syria, which means the Middle East, in effect. And he was a big guy. The emperor who followed Augustus was named Tiberius, and he spoke at Quirinius's funeral. That's pretty good. That's an honor. And yet, the histories of Rome say that they mostly remembered Quirinius for being a mean guy. He divorced his first wife, married another wife, and then he died in the process of divorcing her in a case that was so mean, everybody was sympathetic to her. So that's the kind of guys that are big and happening at the time that this is written. But there's one more thing you got to think about when you read about these guys. And that is the way that God prepared the world for the coming of the Messiah. Because with the re emergence of this Roman Empire and what it would become, there is political stability. 
And you've got this increasing system of Roman roads, which are effective. It makes travel safer and easier. And as I said, they ended up clearing all the seas of the pirates. So you can ship stuff and you're not going to get attacked and looted. The empire as a whole provided for a common language, which became Greek. So for all the different nations governed by Rome, there really is a way to communicate with everybody, which is amazing when you think about all the world receiving the gospel. They can do it. And the nations as such were de-emphasized. What emerged were the great cities, centers of population, and in each of these great cities, you would have synagogues where Moses and the law and the prophets are read and taught. You have the scriptures being translated into Greek and available all over the world. And again, waiting for the missionaries who would come and say, you know what? These things are fulfilled. And it came to the Jews first. So here's an entire huge empire really prepared, and especially in one way. And that is what an empire could not provide to its people. And that is satisfying the soul. When you have an empire of different people, what happens is you hear of things and you're able to pick and choose the best. Oh, I want this product from this country. They do the best of that. Oh, and this, they are great at that. So suddenly, you kind of get to pick the best of the best. And it's that way when it comes to religion and philosophy and superstition. What works? What brings peace? What brings satisfaction? What brings hope? And it's this time where you can see it all. The entire range of ch choices is right there in front of you. And you know what? None of it worked. So they're passing all this stuff around, religions and philosophies, and it turns out none of them. So at this time, you have a collective dissatisfaction in people and a collective longing for salvation. What good is it to have peace and safety and prosperity and inwardly you have no hope? And this is what people are discovering. It was empire-wide. So it was kind of despairing to think, is there anything better than let's eat and drink for tomorrow we die? You mean that's it? So see, God in all of this is preparing people for the gospel. And it's right at this time that God 
fulfills his word with power. Because the Messiah has to be born in the place that God specified. And he wrote this down through the prophet Micah, chapter 5, verse 2. But as for you, Bethlehem Ephrata, too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you one will go forth for me to be ruler in Israel. His goings forth are from long ago, from the days of eternity. So this one from God, who is God, is going to be born in Bethlehem. Now you remember in Matthew, when the wise men from the east come, because they saw the star of the king of the Jews, they've come to worship him, where is he? And King Herod asks the priests, you guys know, right? Where is the Messiah to be born? And they go, Bethlehem. That's what it's written. So that's how the priests understood it. But you know, Mary is in Nazareth. That's kind of like 60 miles away, something like that, a major trip. And she's either eight or nine months pregnant. Now, how is God going to fulfill his word? Well, the interesting thing is it's all uphill, all the way. And he fulfills his word independently with nobody assisting him, right? Because Caesar Augustus, is he aware of what he's doing? He's the most powerful man in the world. If you asked him, do you know what you're doing? He would say, yeah, I'm raising taxes for the state and me. I'm Augustus. I can do that. But he doesn't have a clue that all of the Roman Empire machinery is being maneuvered so that God can maneuver a pregnant woman to the place where she has to be for the Messiah to be born. So the most powerful man in the world is a lever in the hands of God. And you know, Mary and Joseph have nothing to do with this. Joseph didn't say, um, love, you know, I was reading in Micah the other day, and I think we better go to Bethlehem. I mean, I know you're pregnant. Can you imagine? I read this the other day, and I think we need to do something about it. Uh, uh, no way. He wasn't thinking anything like that. The two things they don't want to do, guaranteed, travel and pay taxes. So... You notice people are doing what God wants. They're completely unaware of God making them do this. Which means that God is perfectly capable of fulfilling his own word. And he is doing it right now. Now, this birth of the Messiah is humble. 
they actually make it to Nazareth, right? Or I'm sorry, Bethlehem. And the Traveler's Inn is, is full up. Of course, you can't call ahead and reserve a room. And there is no room, because this is little better than, than walls and a roof and a place for your animal. It's not exalted. It's, it's no room service. It's little better than a bus stop. So don't even think bathrooms. This is really not happy. So you know, it is kind of a miracle that in all of that, full up with people who have traveled from all over who have to go to their hometown to register and pay the tax and all, they get a place to themselves. Isn't that amazing? And they're away from the people, and they even have a place to put the baby when he's born. It's a feeding trough. It is a feeding trough, but it does work, you know. So all of their needs are met. And this is like every aspect of the Messiah's life on this planet. It's humble. It's not showy. It's not you would look at that trough and say, look what it says down here, designed by Portia. Wow, that is some trough. He must be somebody. He's not outwardly attractive. You don't look at him and say, pardon me, aren't you Tom Cruise? You know? You would never recognize him in a crowd. You'd never say, whoa, look at that hairdo. He's just a guy. Because the value of something is not in what it superficially looks like. It's in what it really is. And here, the Messiah expresses the exact character of God. Because God is humble. And everything good comes out of humility. Not thinking about yourself, but thinking about others. This is what the Messiah is here to display to everyone. So, God shows his goodness when he makes the birth of the Messiah known to ordinary guys. In verse 8, it says, Now there were in the same country shepherds living out in the fields, keeping watch over their flock by night. And behold, an angel of the Lord stood before them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were greatly afraid. Then the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which will be to all people. For there is born to you this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be the sign to you. You will find a babe wrapped in swaddling cloths, lying in a manger. 
And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. So it was when the angels had gone away from them into heaven that the shepherds said to one another, Let us now go to Bethlehem and see this thing that's come to pass, which the Lord has made known to us. And they came with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the babe lying in a manger. Now when they had seen him, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. And all who heard it marveled at those things that were told them by the shepherds. But Mary kept all these things and pondered them in her heart. Then the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things that they had heard and seen as it was told them. So we got these shepherds. And, you know, you got to do your thing as a shepherd. And part of it is you got to watch them at night. And you have to do this. So they're just doing their thing. And they're not, neither one of them, none of them are Caesar Augustus or Quirinius. Because they would say, you, do it. And they're the guys that they would say, do it to. So they're just doing a shift job. And it's God in his goodness sending them on purpose an angel. Now, you know, it's a total jump scare. Because here's an angel. You've never seen an angel in your life. Shows up with great glory. It's like... Right? So they're scared out of their wits. Blows their minds. And then he says, don't worry. It's going to be okay. I have good news. I have good news. Great joy for everybody. And that's interesting. Because this is a Jewish Messiah. Promised for the people. But God means his Savior, to save all kinds of people, even those who have no promise, no scriptures, no warning. But he's going to save them anyway. Now that's good of God to want to save all kinds of people. And he says, tonight, this very night, The Savior is born, and that means he's human. But then he is Christ the Lord, and that means he's God. Now, this is the God who made the promises. He's the one who caused those promises to be written down. Now he is the same God who has come to fulfill those promises. And you got to think about this. What is the distance from the Most High to us? Do you know that God is as far above the angels as he is above us? Because the angels are created too. 
And, you know, the angels are way above us. They can show up and jump scare. When I show up, nobody's scared. But God is still far above the angels as much as he is above us. Isn't that amazing to think about? So what's the distance between uncreated God and everything else that is created? I would think it is an infinite distance, and yet God has come that distance, and that distance is down. Everywhere from God is way, way down. And it would be down if God became a glorious angel. But he went even lower and became one of us. Now, that means he is thinking of us more than he is thinking of his own glory and comfort. Can you imagine? You're God, and everything in the universe worships you, except, you know, the planet. But everything else worships you. And now you're born as a helpless baby. I think this is one of the reasons why the angels are freaking out and glorifying God. I don't even know if they would do that. Because they're so far above us. Would they come down and just be a human being? I think they would go, I don't think I would do that. I don't think that's going to be very nice. I like being an angel. I love jump scares. They're the funnest. I don't think I could slum with human beings. But God does it. And I think the angels are going, wow, that is amazing. That is God wrapped up in those cloths, and he's lying in a feeding trough. So you notice that's the sign. The angel says, here is the sign. Is it miraculous? Is it stupendous? No. There's a baby in a feeding trough. Now, no glow. Mysterious light coming from the feeding trough. And especially, no fat babies with wings kind of circling and looking heavenward. You know what I mean? You would, could not walk in here and go, whoa, it's supernatural. You just walk in and go, okay, there's a couple, there's a cow, and there's a baby in a feeding trough. So only the angel's word gives you understanding what's really going on here. You would never pick it up by observation, by looking at it. So you know what God is doing here? Even though it's coming through an angel, he's really communicating by his word. When you see this baby, you're going to know that is the Messiah. And then you have this multitude of angels up here. And there's a ton of them. Not just a few. All of a sudden, it's like the sky is full of them. 
You know, this is the same word to refer to an army. And that is one of the names of the Lord, the Lord of hosts. It means the Lord of the armies of heaven. But here's an army proclaiming peace, proclaiming goodwill toward men, because that is the heart of God. He is full of goodwill toward men. He is of his own free will going lower than the angels. And he has emptied himself, as Paul says in Philippians chapter 2. He's taken on the essence of a bond slave. God has become the servant of God to take upon himself all the sin of the world and die under the righteous punishment of the Father. That's what's happening here. And the angels say, they they disappear, and the shepherds go, wow, we got to check this out. we got to go right now. So it's got to happen in Bethlehem. And they get to the stable, and they find the couple, and they see the baby lying in a feeding trough. And they grab each other, and they go, wow. And the parents are going, who are you? And they go, we just saw angels, and they told us that baby would be there just like he is right here. That baby is the Messiah. Wow. Now, there's no way these men could have known what's going on unless God tells them, see? And so... Mary and Joseph believe them because they're acting like guys who have seen angels and heard the message of God, and they say, that is the baby. That's what we were told. Mary and Joseph can believe what the men are saying. What God is saying is, that is my son, and it's going to be okay because I'm seeing and I'm watching over you. I'm with you. Now, these shepherds go back to their work, but they end up telling lots of people about what happened. And you know, they made widely known the saying which was told them concerning this child. How do you think people reacted to them? You show up and you say, Angels appeared to me, and they told me to go, and there would be a baby there in a feeding trough. And I went there, and there was a baby in the feeding trough, wrapped up just like the angels said. That baby is the Messiah. Hmm. Well, you're acting like a guy who's seen angels, and then you saw that sign. It's, wow, that's, you're not the kind of guy to do that. You're not one of those flipped-out religious types. You're not one of those academic sort of PhD propeller heads who's read one too many book and you're just a little bit fried. 
You're just an ordinary guy like me. This isn't your usual thing. You see what I mean? Those guys acted like guys who saw the Messiah because they really did. Mary treasures these things in her hearts because she never wants to forget them. Listen, nothing supernatural happened to her that night except these guys came in and said, that's the Messiah. She doesn't want to forget it just because it was so normal. But she's thinking about the significance of this. So look, the gospel begins with this fact that God is good. Here's God with all power. He can move the world. He can make anybody do anything that he wants. And yet, you know, he wants to use all that power to save people from their sins. He could show up with his power and glory and he could force people to do things. But he's not like that. What he does do is fulfill his word himself. Now, you know, that means it's going to be done right. He's not leaving it up to angels or even us. He's going to do it himself. And because God is humble, that means he's good. And that's what you've got to take away from this, is that God is good. If you've got problems with God for any reason, do you know that you're wrong? There's no reason to be down on God or say, well, you know, if he's God, then why did this happen or that happen? He is totally good. And if you're down on God, it means you've got to change your mind. And you've got to learn about God as he really is. And the next thing about God, about being good, is that he saves the humble. You know he doesn't save many guys like Augustus or Quirinius, guys you can't even say their names. Not many of those guys. You know why? Because they think they're okay. Their successes, they made it to the top. I'm good, they say. God saves the person who knows he's a sinner. Who says, what have I done? What have I done? And you know, you want to get saved? Humble yourself before God. And think about your sins. Mourn over them like it was spilled water and you can't get it back. You can't fix it. If you take that attitude about your sins and come to Jesus, he will fix it and make it right. Even now this morning, you're aware of your sins? He can make it right. And then another thing to take away from this is that you only learn about God rightly 
from his word. You know, the Bible isn't outwardly flashy. The Bible is not strobe lights and fog machines. You know what I mean? It, it's actually pretty boring looking. And a lot of people stay away from the Bible because it's not impressive. And people are drawn to things that are outwardly impressive. But the Bible doesn't do that. Have you noticed? What the angel said wasn't flashy, but it was true. He said three things. The Messiah is born tonight. He's wrapped up with cloths, and he's lying in a manger, and he's in Bethlehem. Now, these guys took the angel at his word and found out, yes, he was born tonight. Yes, he's in Bethlehem. And yes, that baby is wrapped up and in a feeding trough. And so, what about the last statement? That he is the Messiah. See, the angel was right about all the other things. It must be so. You don't say, well, he was right about three things, but no, nah, that's just a baby. That last one is not true. If it got all the other things right, there's a high probability that this last fact is true as well. So the gospel of God is just like that, is not flashy, but it is true. And if you trust in what God says, you will be saved. He says, Jesus came and died for your sins. And he rose from the dead on the third day. And that means that all of your sins have been paid for. You receive that and say, yeah, he did it for me. And you accept what God says, you will find that it is true. Now, God reveals himself to the humble through his word. This is really important. To see angels is cool, but you can get through life and never see an angel, and you'll be okay. You haven't missed out. The Messiah who saves, he is the big thing. And you're only going to know God as you humble yourself before the Bible and say, God, will you teach me? And if you do that, you're going to know God. You're going to grow in your relationship with him. Beware that you do not ignore the word of God. Because this is the one thing in all the universe that doesn't scream at you. Everything else does. Have you noticed? You got to do this. You got to do this. Look at me. Everything is strobes and flashy and bits and everything, but the Bible isn't any of that stuff. 
It's just sitting there. And it's always going to talk in a still, small voice. It's not going to scream at you. So either you give the Bible attention or you ignore it. And you know, it's kind of scary to me how I keep meeting people who have been Christians even up to decades and they still haven't read the whole Bible through one time. Now, if you only read parts of the Bible and not the whole Bible, you don't get a whole revelation of God. You only get a part of it. And you're missing the full revelation that God has for you. If you ignore God's word, your relationship with God will decline, diminish, become real thin. You will become arrogant before God. Because you're going to be thinking about yourself. That is essentially what a proud person does. And you can find out if you're proud. Do you think about yourself? I'm not going to ask for a show of hands. But if you catch yourself thinking about yourself and worrying, that is the essence of being proud. Because you think about yourself. So that's, you know, God does not give grace to the proud. He gives grace to the humble. So you're worrying about yourself. You're thinking about yourself. You are not receiving the grace of God. And here's another knock-on effect. Who believes you? Who believes your witness? Do you act like a person in whom Christ dwells? Or do you have some facts and some knowledge up here, but experientially you live as though he did not exist? Who's going to believe you? And what kind of a witness do you have? You know, if you don't know Jesus, you're going to keep your mouth shut because they might ask you a question you don't know. And then you're going to look stupid. So rather than look stupid, you keep your mouth shut. And there you are living effectively as somebody who doesn't know God because you don't know God. Why should anybody believe these shepherds? You know what? They don't care. They saw what they saw. And if you don't believe me, see you in a hundred years, pal. They're not worried about what people think about them. They saw not only the angels, they saw the Messiah. That's it. Non-negotiable. He's here and we saw him. So here's the challenge, is to not ignore the Bible. Read the whole thing through. And when you get done, read it again, and again, and again. And you know what's going to happen? You are going to know God. Because, yes, it's not flashy. It's not strobe lights and quick edits and 
superficial, but it is living. It is living. And you put this in your life, and you will know God, and you're going to act like a person who knows God. And that is what people need to see. So you're going to have a real relationship with God, and your life is going to prove it. Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, that you have mercy on people who know they're wrecked and they need a Savior. And I trust, Lord, that you're working in all of our lives so that we come to that point and we say, you know what? I don't know what I'm doing. And I'm so aware of my mistakes and my failures and my sins. I can't even lift up my eyes to heaven. But we thank you, Lord, that you are so merciful that you came to us. That you save the humble. And you want that person to just trust in you and say, I will save you to the uttermost. So we want to say that to you. Thank you, Lord, that you sent Jesus to die for our sins. And we praise you, Lord, that you raised him from the dead. And we pray that we could know you because that's eternal life. Teach us your way. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen.